Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, get your kicking shoes on, because we're about to punt this movie into the stands. This is Blue Chips. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Blast Zone. Welcome to the Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like Blue Chips, which we're talking about today, continuing our tour of the 1990s. We've been on a 90s kick lately. Blue Chips. What's next? Purple Salsa? Oh, boy. <laughs> Blue Chips, Purple Salsa, the name of our new vegan Mexican restaurant. But, but yeah, Blue Chips, Ian. How are you doing this week? You know, I love a good slapdash metaphor. So this week I, I thought about it and I, I feel like an undercooked turkey when it's like oh. still a little frozen when you put it in the oven. You thought you thought it out, but comes out as disturbing shade of pink. Uh, you know, if you saw me in person, you'd probably want to cancel Thanksgiving and order some takeout. I can see you right now, Ian. You look <laughs> fine. I don't know. I use a meat thermometer for everything now. That's smart. So I don't have that problem anymore. Uh, yeah. Also, I'm desperate to fry a turkey one year, so I can't have any partially frozen turkey because that will yeah that'll lead to a major explosion but you don't look like a partially frozen turkey in my opinion lovely <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> keeping up appearances well i did i basted my face i took the foil off and i let that brown a little bit but if you see underneath it's not looking good oh boy well i'm feeling good we had our first nice day today it was 74 degrees today in connecticut finally took the kids to the playground for a nice long play sesh in the middle of the work day hopefully my boss isn't listening to this get out of the <laughs> house get some fresh air some sun that's awesome yeah it was fun and uh, that's where I'm at. You know, that's my life nowadays. That's a good day in my book. I took my kids to the playground and then yeah. recording a podcast. What more can you ask for? The simple pleasures of podcasting in parks. It's great. Well, I'm not in the park now. Did you say <laughs> no. podcasting in parks no, or end well, parks? I said and. I meant and if I didn't say it. That makes more sense. No, I'm not in the park right now. I'm at home. You'd hear a lot of background noise probably, <laughs> crickets and such. Yeah. <laughs> Ian, did you have a chance to watch anything this week that you wanted to tell us about? I did. I watched this cute little movie called West Side Story. Ever heard of it? You know what? As old and crusty as I am, I never saw the original. I was like, oh, well, I'm going to see the Spielberg version. And it's really good. A lot of people talk about the visuals because the camera work is amazing. And Spielberg is obviously known for that. And it sounds corny, but somehow the visuals alone in parts of this movie are emotionally moving. Just the sight of this section of New York that's being torn down to make way to build Lincoln Center and somehow it's very evocative, just the visuals of it. But the acting takes it to the next level. It's a tragedy, of course. So whatever else you think about the story, it's got the corny, traditional Broadway musical stuff, snapping and some jiving and people bursting into song. But whatever you think of that, the main actors do amazing jobs bringing home the tragic moments, of which there are several in this. And I felt a lot of feelings. It was a good movie. I've given Spielberg my seal of approval. Huh. I'm sure he appreciates that. <laughs> Am I wrong in remembering? Isn't it kind of a Romeo and Juliet yeah, allegory? Exactly. Okay. It's based on your very traditional Shakespearean tragedy. So you can expect that some shit will go bad by the end. I also never saw the original. I'm less old and crusty than you, but still didn't get around to seeing that. And I haven't got around to seeing the Spielberg version yet either, but I do want to just there's a lot lot out right now. There's a lot of shows about crooked startup CEOs that I'm deep into, so I can't abandon those. If you've got to finish all those first, you're never going to watch anything else because they just keep dropping them. There's another one coming out today about the WeWork guy. <laughs> so I read that book. I watched that documentary. I got to watch the show. Yeah. Even though I'm no Jared Leto fan at this point. Leto? Leto? Who cares? We don't know. And we don't care. 
But the sense of like you're talking about a big Oscar movie, getting a lot of awards buzz maybe, and one of the big releases of the past few months from an esteemed director, I figured I'd follow suit because I have a similar movie in my back pocket here. I finally got a chance to check out Licorice Pizza. Oh, yeah. The the Paul Thomas Anderson slice of life, coming of age story set in his hometown. What part of L.A. was that? Was the Valley? That was the Valley. The kid says he's from Encino because Encino's a little more upscale than Sherman Oaks. But then, then he admits to her that he's from Sherman Oaks. And what was the restaurant he always hung out at? It looked very cool. Oh, yeah. I think that's real, but I did not know it. I think maybe it used okay. to exist. It might not exist anymore, but they rebuilt an actual old school Tale of the Cock or something nasty like that. Tale of the Cock. I just Googled it. You're going to hear my clickety clackies, and I apologize for that. But I got to know about this Tale of the Cock restaurant. Yeah, no longer open. It was a big hangout for a lot of Hollywood people, hmm. including John Wayne. But I really like this movie. It's not perfect, obviously. There are some things about it that have ruffled some feathers. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get too deep into them if people haven't seen it. I don't want to spoil things. I mean, it was pretty much a bomb. I'm sure we could talk about it at some point if we wanted to dedicate a whole episode to it. Let me see what the financials on this were. If I give movies released during COVID a little more leeway, so you'd have to really bomb. But yeah, it had a $40 million budget, only made $27 million. So... That definitely qualifies for the pod if we ever wanted to do that and we can get more in depth with it. It's just the way you described West Side Story as evocative. I definitely felt licorice pizza really captured a time and place that I've I've never known, but I could still tell that it was authentic and, Uh you know, it felt real. Like I said, there's some controversy around the movie between the age gap of the main kind of star-crossed characters, but... Without getting too specific, I see the ending more as a defeat for them than a victory. And that kind of colors my interpretation of it and how, how it really plays out like for the future. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I could definitely see where people, that is something that people have to confront when taking in this movie. But don't be worried if you're hearing us talk about that. This is not a French film that has people having sex in uncomfortable situations. This is a very warm-hearted, safe, friendly film. It has an unusual relationship in it, but it's not pushing your comfort zone, really. This isn't Lolita. This is not Lolita. It's not even Red Rocket. Although Red Rocket would make an interesting double feature with this movie in terms of like, that's like, yeah, I don't want to give away too much about Red Rocket either, but it's like the flip side of that coin, how this is like warm about the relationship between these two characters and handles it almost with kid gloves, I would say. Red Rocket is the opposite. (laughs) And also the genders are swapped in Red Rocket and the age gap is much bigger. That's immediately (laughs) creepier. Yeah. This is like, like a young woman who's not as mature as she should be and a young man who's eerily too mature for how old he is and how they figure out how to relate to each other. Right. Cooper Hoffman, son of the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, one of our greatest actors. And I thought he did a great job. You know, there are spots where he reminds you of his dad, but he's very much his own actor and has his own style. And he's quite charming. I'm curious to see what he does. A lot of sons and daughters of like famous actors in this movie, which I thought was interesting. And apparently that was a a choice by Paul Thomas Anderson. Like the movie is partially about nepotism in a sense. Yeah, it's a very personal film and people call it, what are they calling it? Like a family, like he just, he wrote it around Alana Haim and her family and they're all in it. Her entire family is playing her family. Yeah, her dad in the movie is her dad. <laughs> yeah, good. All the Haim sisters from the band are in yeah. there. But yeah, just really fun movie, really kind of breezy. Yeah. Which I don't, like Paul Thomas Anderson, I've never really thought of as a breezy filmmaker. I guess Inherent Vice is breezy in, in a way, but his movies tend to stress me out. You know, just the, the Alfred Molina scene on Boogie Nights immediately exactly, comes to mind. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's my one little piece of advice without, again, we don't want to spoil too much for all the people who haven't seen it yet. Don't go into this movie holding your breath like I did and expecting some horrific shit to happen and ruin your good time. Because it's actually a little warmer. Some hijinks happen, some crazy shit goes down, but it's not going to end in blood. Shout out to 
of Bradley Cooper playing a character that you might remember if you've been listening to the podcast for every episode. Yes. I won't spoil it any further, but he's playing a real life person that we've discussed. I wouldn't <laughs> know if I would say at length, but at least for a few minutes on this podcast. It's a hangout movie, you know, much in the way that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was for its first two hours before like, <laughs> right. it got all crazy, except like the shoe never drops in Licorice Pizza. It yeah. just is a hangout movie. It's cute. And yeah, great performances. Who knew Alana Haim? Like she she should definitely keep making music because I love her band, but also she should keep making movies because she is a powerhouse in this movie. Conveying so much with her eyes, which is what you want from your great actors. All right. It's time to wrap up our licorice pizza talk and get into the topic (laughs) of the day. We're talking blue chips. Ian, I spoke highly of this film at the end of our Batman and Robin episode. Full disclosure, I had not yet rewatched the movie, so I might have been a bit too... What's the word I'm looking for here? Starts with an EF sound. Effusive. Yeah, I may have been a bit too effusive in my (laughs) praise, but remains to be seen. This was a very important movie for me. I watched that on HBO nonstop. I was a huge basketball fan growing up. I was a New York Knicks fan, obviously still am to this day. But I think my favorite players were never really on the Knicks. I rooted for the team, but like I wasn't a John Starks fan because fuck that guy. I liked Patrick Ewing. I liked Charles Oakley, but like my favorite players were always like Penny Hardaway, Glenn Rice, like these guys from other teams uh-huh. that I just loved the way they played. So I think this movie had a lot to do with my Penny Hardaway fandom, which watching it now, I kind of wonder why. But <laughs> what did you know about this movie? Do you remember when it came out? Did you watch it? Were you a fan? Did you not like it? I knew very little. When the name came up, I could tell you, okay, that's about college hoops. I knew that Shaq was in it and that was kind of it. So I came to it totally fresh. It was a new experience for me from start to finish. So you never saw Blue Chips? No. Well, I guess I shouldn't be so surprised at that considering, but it was a bomb. But it's a movie that I feel like's always been on the, the fringes of sports and pop culture, which is a crossover that I find myself deep into because uh-huh. my favorite podcasters, Chris Ryan, Sean Fennessy, the guys from The Ringer, they talk about Blue Chips a lot. Okay. And they did back when they were on Grantland, the site that kind of was the proto-ringer. And it was always in conversations, there'd be talk about it on podcast. So like the movie never really faded from my memory. So there's always been stuff to remind me about it ever since then. But weirdly, I'd never felt the need to go back and rewatch it. I just crystallized in my mind and I enjoyed conversations about it, but I never actually sat down and rewatched it. It probably 15 years since I've seen this movie. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about that. I feel like the way that I would explain that interest from the sportsy side of people is it's a movie that almost has more to offer for sports fans than it does for movie fans. Most sports movies disappoint the hardcore sports fans. The sports look terrible or they just do stupid dumbs down stuff like we had with draft day that the coach is like, it's draft day. Who do we want to pick? All this kind of dumb stuff like this movie. It it might lose the thread a little bit because it tries to show a lot of coaching and all of it. It's not necessarily the height of real time play calling, but the sports in this movie is good sports because it's real guys who play basketball and they show a lot of it. And so it's satisfying as a sports movie. Yeah. Ron Shelton, who wrote the screenplay, was a college basketball player himself. And so he was very familiar with the game. William Friedkin, who directed it is a big basketball fan. I don't know that he ever was involved with it, you know, on a professional level, but he definitely knew his basketball. And then you hire the real players to go. And when he was filming games, they weren't like setting up for a scene, filming one play and then calling cut. He kind of gave these guys an idea of what he wanted and let them play games. And they had like seven or eight cameras on the court at all times. And they just captured as much of it as they could and then edit it that way. So you get a lot of, you get probably more game footage in this movie than you need, but I could tell they were really happy with what they got. They milk it. But it, it is good and you can see the difference. Like movies or TV shows where there's games depicted that are scripted and you, now the quarterback drops back and he's sacked just as he throws the long bomb. Those always look totally fake and you're just like, hey, they've they got to fake it because 
it's for the story. This, you're just like, you're watching a game and you're just like, oh, shit, he just lobbed it up to Shaq and he fucking spun and dunked it. And there's just all kinds of good play. So it's palpably different from your average sports movie. And this movie's a very interesting time capsule for a couple of reasons, but specifically when it comes to player compensation, like in college sports, because you could just tell where that conversation was when this movie was made, because uh-huh. the main villain of the movie, and I don't want to belabor too many of the plot points right now, because we're going to get into it in more depth, but he was like, you know, these kids make us like so much money. They deserve something in return. And Nick Nolte's like, you fucking piece of garbage. <laughs> Whereas now, I feel like the majority of people have really come around to that idea. Like, honestly, like these kids do make the universities and these coaches a ton of money. I'm not saying they should be millionaires in college, but give them some, you know, compensation. Yeah. Well, I'm not that up on sports, but I think just this year they started paying the players or allowing them to make money from various kind of deals. I think that's more what it is. It's not, they don't get a salary or anything, but they've loosened the restrictions on how they can earn money from their association with the basketball program or whatever sports program they're enrolled in. So they're just starting to be able to take deals and make a TV commercial and get paid for it or whatever it is. And finally, yeah, it's such a shame that this had to happen. You know, this movie is shot partially at USC and one of my guys in my time around that school, Reggie Bush, was Oh, yeah. You know, lost his whole legacy because he was tainted by this exact kind of thing that's depicted in this movie. Getting something from a booster, some little thing that like is nothing compared to the type of money that changes hands in the programs and in the pros. But back then it was like the coach who's a good guy in this movie represents that old school thinking like, no way you fucking want money. You're a moral pariah. Get the fuck out of my program. There was a player, I'm trying to remember who it was. Oh, it was Terrell Pryor, who was the quarterback for Ohio State, I think in like the mid-aughts. He was embroiled in scandal for getting like a free tattoo. Oh, God. Because he was the quarterback. You know, at some point, you just got to laugh at it. It's ridiculous. But, you know, these old school Coach Pete Bell type dudes were just so far up their own ass. They were so resistant to any kind of change. I mean, these kids are commodities. Yeah. Think about what a college, like a high-level college coach makes per year. What do you think Pete Bell was pulling in this movie? Probably I know. 800 grand a year. <laughs> Quite a bit. They make a comment like the cost to buy out your contract is the same as whatever. Mary McConnell says one time, like, you're paid very well for what you do, which is the only thing you've ever wanted to do. But he's still a grumpy piece of shit, which, again, we'll get into more. Do you want me to just tell the story about the production so we could finally start harping on how grumpy Pete Bell is? (laughs) Yeah, let's hear how this thing happened. All right. By 1994, Ron Shelton had confirmed his place as the king of sports movies. He'd written and directed movies about baseball with Bill Durham and street basketball with White Men Can't Jump, two critical and commercial hits. Even before he made White Men Can't Jump, he had a different basketball screenplay he'd been shopping around, a movie about corruption in college ball titled Blue Chips. He struggled to get Blue Chips greenlit, but after the success of White Men Can't Jump, he finally had some leverage. And leverage is what you need to get a white man off the ground. William Friedkin, on the other hand, hadn't directed a movie since 1990's critical and commercial failure, The Guardian, a movie he disliked so much he had it credited to Alan Smithy for the edited for cable TV version. Alan Smithy? That's the guy who edits our podcast. It seemed unlikely that Friedkin would come aboard as the movie was being made under the Paramount Pictures umbrella, and Friedkin's relationship with the studio had essentially been destroyed by the disastrous production of 1997's gnarliest fuck thriller, Sorcerer. Seriously, Sorcerer rules so hard. Go watch it so when we eventually cover it, you'll know what we're talking about. And if you know what we're talking about, please tell us. However, as luck would have it, Friedkin had married Sherry Lansing in 1991, 
1982, she was made the chairman of Paramount Pictures. With Friedkin in as director, he set about casting the movie. His only choice for lead character coach Pete Bell was Nick Nolte. You godless son of a bitch! And with Nolte on board, the cast was rounded out with reliable supporting actors like Mary McConnell and J.T. Walsh, and also plenty of familiar faces from the world of basketball, such as Bob Cousy, Shaquille O'Neal, and Anthony Penny Hardaway. Given a budget of $35 million, filming began in May 1994 in Frankfurt, Indiana, with additional scenes being shot in French Lick, Indiana, Chicago, New Orleans, and the USC campus in LA. Filming wrapped in August of 93, and the film headed to post-production. The first sign of trouble was with the film's release date, February 18th, 1994. While it isn't necessarily the case anymore, February was known as Dumpuary for many years around Hollywood, and was used as a time for studios to release projects they had little faith in. Shaq was stoked, but that's because he thought they said Dumpuary. To that end, Blue Chip was released to very little competition and still managed to disappoint. The other new wide release that weekend was Steven Seagal's On Deadly Ground, which took the top spot with $12.6 million. Surprise hit Ace Ventura Pet Detective was in its second week and took second place with $10.2 million. And Blue Chips got the bronze with $10.1 million. Reviews were bad to mixed on the film, as it currently sits at 34% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it would earn just $26 million total in its theatrical run, but has earned a reputation as a cult classic and even earned a spot in the Ringer's Sports Movie Hall of Fame. Well, it's a little consolation prize. It's not the NCSA tournament trophy, but it's something. Forget the trophy. That's the first game of the season. <laughs> I know, they don't get anywhere. Spoiler alert. <laughs> they have a one-game season. What a strange uh, way to end a movie with a climactic game. And it's just the <laughs> debut. But that's, yeah, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Friedkin's a character, man. He's obviously a very prolific and successful director in a lot of ways. He'd made some of these movies. He made Thin Blue Line, French Connection, The Exorcist, To Live and Die in L.A., the aforementioned Sorcerer. Like, those are stone-cold classics. And he also earned himself a reputation for kind of being a dick. Including shooting this movie. Yeah, there's some behind-the-scenes stuff that Ian uncovered literally like an (laughs) hour before we recorded this. He sent it to me. And yeah. What a monster. Yeah. He's not a nice man. No, not a nice guy. It was one of those Hollywood stories. He was doing it to evoke the performance, but he basically verbally and physically abused one of his actors to get him to give him more emotional performance in a key scene. Yeah, and, we'll, and uh, we'll, yeah. the scene comes up in our synopsis, so we'll, uh, we can point we'll it out when we get there. But yeah, he slapped one of his actors in the face pretty hard and not just once, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, it sounded bad. That's the problem with old school guys like that. They think it's justified if they, oh, well, we got a good take. And then 20 years later, everyone's like, oh, you know, I love the guy now and he's all right. right. And he was a great director, but. Well, he's like 86 years old now. What are you going to say? I would have beat the fuck out of that guy. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm going to his house now and smack him around. Yeah, I'm kick his walker out from under him. No, <laughs> William Friedkin and Dustin Hoffman should make a movie together and they could just slap each other in the face before takes. You know, just there's I'm no like, movie. They're just they're both in the hospital with cerebral <laughs> hematoma from slapping each other too hard. I might watch a few minutes of that at least to check out how it went. Oh, down. I'll get popcorn. I'll see you in the theater. You kidding me? <laughs> Dustin Hoffman famously slapped up Meryl Streep before a scene without her consent to get her uh, emotional uh, filming Kramer versus Kramer, I believe. Yeah. Let's not do that anymore, everybody in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't have done it ever. But now, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Let's never do it again. Yeah, please. Do you want to start going through the story and we can get into the nitty gritty of blue chips? Yeah. So Pete Bell is a verbally abusive college basketball coach with anger issues. He's divorced from his wife for being 
impossible to live with, but he's not a bad guy. He just doesn't do well with losing, which sucks for him because he's just wrapping up the first losing season of his career. Except for his star guard, Tony, Coach Pete's Western University Dolphins team lacks talent. So he decides that for next season, he'll step up his efforts and recruit an all new class of blue chip players. That's a pretty good setup for a movie. Nalty is being Nalty. He's chewing on some glass before every take so his voice can be extra like, <laughs> ah, ah, hell, goddamn. He, he calls his college students that he repeatedly refers to as kids throughout the movie. I think he calls them goddamn sons of bitches at some point during this climactic speech that he's giving them in the oh, beginning man. of the movie. <laughs> Yeah, every few seconds, he's unloading on them. Throws a water jug at them. He tears their clothes out of their lockers. You guys don't deserve a locker room, you pieces of shit. I don't know what he calls them there, but he's so abusive. So the movie right away stumbles over this thing, which is Nick Nolte shadowed fucking Bobby Knight, the real Bobby Knight, for a bunch of time. His character is based on Bobby Knight. And so they wanted to really go hard with this abusive, awful shit. But that's actually not where the script takes you. So they unleash this stuff and then they start walking it back and they turn it back into a good dude. So I feel like the movie stumbles out of the gate there, even in the midst of this first scene where he storms out of the locker room and he comes back two more times. And by the third time, he's softened. It's a movie that loses its nerve very quickly to actually show you a flawed, terrible man and his redemption. It shows you a loud man, but he's all right. And actually, he's much better than you thought he was by the 10 minute mark. Yeah. The whole insane anger blow ups, like it feels at odds with the character we see when he's going on his recruiting trips, except when Ricky Rowe is involved, which is my favorite recurring bit in the whole movie <laughs> is that he just loses his shit every time Ricky Rowe talks to him. But he yeah, like it doesn't feel Friedkin-y to me. Like the movie you described sounds Friedkin-y to me, like this really bad guy who goes down an even darker path, but then somehow seeks contrition for it. And by the end, but no, he's just like, he's a pretty good guy. He likes to shout a lot and call college kids curse words. Yeah. First of all, Let's all stop trying to be like Bobby Knight. Um, <laughs> Please. He's not a good guy. He's not a nice person. The behind the scenes stories from this movie confirm that even further. He's just kind of a dick. He's been accused of a lot of bad things, some of which he admitted to, not only verbally berating his players, but physically assaulting them. But <laughs> there are other college coaches in this movie that you could have had him shadow just to learn the lifestyle of a college basketball coach without having to take on all these kind of cartoonish, angry mannerisms. Or go make an actually dark movie, right? You like to quote Nolte from Warrior, which is a movie about athletes and families, and they're genuinely fucked up. Like, there's some real fucked up shit, and you see what it looks like when somebody has real unresolved issues. But they kind of tease you with this. They reel out a little something. They go, oh, the coach is abusive, but it's not a problem. It doesn't cause him any problems. It doesn't cause the people around him any problems. So, oh, I guess it's nothing. Then they next introduce you to the wife, who turns out to be the ex-wife, and they drag you through this long thing. Jenny. Jenny Bell. Jenny Bell still has Pete's name and the scene really fakes you out. He comes home, pours himself a drink. You're like, oh, no, he's probably an alcoholic too. And she's like, honey, tell me about the game. And then after this long ground out scene, she goes, okay, time to go and sends him out the back door to the apartment where he lives because they're divorced, which was a funny fake out. Did you see that coming? Because it got me. I remembered it from watching it as a kid, which is the only oh, right. reason I probably didn't get surprised by it. But yeah, it's kind of a cleverly constructed scene. But then once the veil is dropped, you're like, 
these people have boundary issues. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he just walks into your house like, right. constantly. Like, what if you were on a date? You know, what if you had a guy over? You know, what if you were doing something? Drinking her good liquor. You're not beholden to him anymore. Yeah, like he's drinking <laughs> her good booze. <laughs> and also love his apartment, though. Shout out to uh, the subreddit male living space because he's just got like a TV and a bed. Like he's got everything he needs. He looks like one of those pictures of a guy with just like a Nintendo Switch and a TV <laughs> and a mattress on the floor. Like he's basically living like that, which, you know, props to him. That's all you need. But those are all hints, like the drinking, the boundary issues, the divorce. She's like, he's like, why are we divorced? She's like, uh, you're impossible to live with. And it's like, oh, yeah, because of his alcoholism and his anger issues and his obsessiveness and all this stuff. And it's like, no, he's fine. Actually, they still love the shit out of each other. And that's another. Wait, where's the dark guy? Like, why isn't his problem related to his clear issues that you're signaling to us in bright flashing lights? But that's not really his problem. His problem is just that he had a losing season because of a weird alleged incident and their recruiting wasn't that good. Like it's Yeah, not there's that- rumors about point shaving surrounding the team that has led to recruiting trouble. Plus, they're having trouble recruiting because they refuse to pay players. Oh, they're too good. Oh, that's his problem. He's not. Yeah, he's not. He's too flawed, virtuous, damn it. <laughs> flawed, terrible man. He's not flawed enough. He's too damn heroic. Well, that'll teach him. They mentioned something about the football team's been in the top 10 for the past eight years or whatever. And that's because they are in the pocket of the friends of the program, which is this mysterious cabal Uh that is talking about in hushed tones like fucking Voldemort. It's just boosters, guys. Like, (laughs) we're all familiar with boosters, right? If you've watched Friday Night Lights, you know who we're talking about. They're just like sad old guys that are a little too into their college and have (laughs) a lot of money. Yeah. That's all it is. Like, the friends of the program comes up so much, you think it's like fucking skull and bones or something. I know. No, they're obviously cast as the villains in this. There's one of them, Happy, is the character that represents them all. And you don't really see other people. But like, forces the coach to say lines like, I hate the alumni. I wish the alumni of this school would die and leave us alone. It's like, <laughs> dude, even if they're not doing this sort of boundary pushing illegal stuff, like offering cars to recruits, they're still the alumni. They're funding the university. You can't just tell them all to go to hell. You got to send letters to them a couple times a year asking for money to get the gym floors redone or whatever. Exactly. Like that's your target audience. You can't just throw them out. It's like a thing in this movie where somebody will say something very reasonable to Coach Bell and Nick Nolte will be just like, get the fuck out of my face, you goddamn piece of shit. You know, he's got so many principles. He's got this big bristling quiver of principles that like everything he hears is like, oh, I have a principle against that. You son of a bitch. God damn it. Ah, hell, you goddamn (laughs) son of a bitch. I'm not going to have a voice tomorrow if we keep this up. It's a slippery slope because it's fun to do. One of my favorite things though is he goes i think he's back in his house now and he turns on the news and they're talking about his losing season and whoever this newscaster is that's like updating him he just cuts like a wwe style promo on him he's like coach bell is like a cancer on this university and basketball he should probably just kill himself i guess (laughs) and i'm like whoa he had one losing season in like how many years he's been pushing this team for like 15 years oh yeah i'm trying to think of that guy's name he's a local la guy oh he's a real newscaster from la that's cool yeah yeah, Todd Donahoe. That's him. I just Todd Donahoe. <laughs> so he's been on LA local TV my whole life. Is he like a shock jock? Is this a thing he would do where he would just go off on a coach? No, he's like a typical local. He was like ABC affiliates, nightly news sports guy. So uh, he would do some opinionated little takes, but like he was just, you know, doing the nightly sports. You remember like what I'm talking about though. Like he goes off on him for a good 30 seconds. Just <laughs> he ripping does, his yeah. ass. Like. He does a pretty harsh thing. He's like, he's nice to him on court because the coach kind of blows him off for it. That's the same guy, right? He tries oh, to get right yeah, this is my the guy. court 
And he goes, oh, sorry, coach, didn't mean to ruffle feathers. Like he's professional with him on the court. And then that night he writes this diatribe and lets him have it on the nightly news. You know, you solved my mystery though. I'm like, why is he so mad at him? And you're like, oh, he <laughs> fucking blew him off. That makes perfect sense. Thank you, Ian. Yeah, it's not a plot hole. It actually makes sense. I also find it disconcerting that some people call him Petey Bell and some people call him Pete. Like Petey Bell sounds like a cartoon bird. <laughs> when you're a coach and you're Pete and Petey and Coach Bell, it's like a lot of names flying at you. It's like the Lord of the Rings. Everybody has like their Elvish name and then they have their <laughs> regular name. So, yeah, it's a lot to remember. It was. I want to talk a little bit about Bob Cousy in this movie because he's weirdly good in it, right? You could tell he's not an actor, but he does seem like an athletic director. Like he's himself. He did a decent job of being who he was, which is an aging basketball personality. Yeah. In these opening scenes, I wasn't too impressed with them, but there's some like kind of emotional scenes for him later on. And he right. handles them pretty well for a guy who, like you said, is definitely not an actor. That's the thing, though. The movie is caught up and kind of parading out these cameos and it does the confusing thing where some of them are playing themselves and some of them are playing fictional characters but they look like famous basketball people we know i wish they'd commit to one or the other like don't have larry bird be larry bird but then have bob Cousy be Vic. you know because <laughs> right. then it's like what fucking what universe are we in? it's a weird multiverse and basketball players you know what they're not by and large they're not actors so they're not actually the next section of the film is when they start rolling in one after another and we get to evaluate all their performances side by side but uh, yeah you want me to let me just add as a little note because you know i love to drop ian life tidbits tidbits i attended the university of southern california for a period of time in my youth when I was a college kid, I mean, this film is shot partially on USC's campus, but it's been a long time. So I'm watching this movie. I'm like, oh, look at the crowds heading into the university field house. It's the famous basketball arena, at USC. And I'm like, wait a minute. That's the bookstore. That's not an arena at all. Are they going in there to buy hoodies and textbooks? What's going on here? That must be quite a bookstore, though, to double as the outside of an arena. <laughs> it looks good on the film. If they lined it up next to an actual basketball arena, you'd see it's not quite that size. But it has a nice looking facade. But I was like, wait a minute, am I crazy or... Is that where I went to go buy textbooks? Yeah, well, the actual gym scenes interior-wise were shot in Indiana at a school over there. So they did some, some magic there. It's probably expensive to shoot in California more so than Indiana on a college campus that's quite active. So makes sense. All right, let's get into the middle section of the movie. Yeah, let's hear about it. Starting his recruiting drive, Coach Pete goes after Chicago point guard Butch McRae, played by Penny Hardaway and works hard to impress Butch's demanding mom. Then he visits Indiana to recruit farm boy forward Ricky Rowe. Finally in Louisiana, he meets a raw, unknown seven-foot phenom named Neon Badeau, played by Shaquille O'Neal. He brings them all back to campus in L.A., and everyone gets excited about them joining the team. Even Pete's ex-wife, Jenny, agrees to tutor Neon on the SAT he needs to get into school. A sleazy alumni booster named Happy pressures Pete to let him lure the kids with gifts and money. But Pete tells him to fuck off, you piece of garbage. But after Ricky Rowe flat out asks for cash and Coach Bell fears his blue chips will all scatter, he gives in and lets Happy go to work, secretly bribing the kids with cash, cars, and more. A lot more. A lot more. It's a bigger conversation, but like, it's almost hard to see the parents in these roles as like villains. You kind of see the conditions they're in. Um, Alfre Woodard, who plays Butch's mom, fantastic actress and great in uh -huh. this role too. She's lights out every time she's on screen, but I really liked her in this movie. Like, she's living obviously in a terrible situation and she just wants a house with a yard for her kids. And you're like, when you think about what a star point guard can bring to your college, it's hard to see them as like evil, which the movie kind of tries to paint them as. She's certainly very demanding. And it, I didn't get the sense that I was trying to cast her as a bad guy, but it puts the pressure on Coach Bell because he, he goes there and he does a big song and dance to wow that family. 
He's setting up the kids and the grandma in the living room to show him. He makes this plays. poor, like 75 year old woman set a fucking screen on her granddaughter. He's lucky she didn't break a hip and then he'd be liable. <laughs> and then, yeah, dunks a ball into a floor lamp, but it makes an impression. And that's where you were starting to say, like, he goes on this recruiting drive and he's no longer the angry, scary man he was. He's this cute guy who's charming the little kids. And yeah, he's very charming. He seems kind and, you know, like helpful and well-liked by everyone he comes across. And it's just at odds with the characterization we've gotten of him up to this point. And then what we continue to get, you could say something about, oh, well, he's only in competitive mode, like during a game or during a practice or whatever. But no, like he flies off the handle several times outside of those conditions. He's just like a very unbalanced character. And that's like, (laughs) I don't mean he's unbalanced like chemically, like he's poorly written. Yes, that too. Maybe unbalanced. (laughs) You'd have to be somewhat chemically unbalanced to exhibit this behavior, but they could have written it a little more consistently. Yeah. Uh, Since you'd like to drop an Ian tidbit, I also want to drop a John tidbit here. Please. When he's in Chicago, I guess he's in a rental, but he's driving a maroon 1991, I believe, Buick Park Avenue around the streets of Chicago. That was my first car. Oh. Almost as old as me. Bought it for $1,000 with no plates. I took the plates off my friend's minivan, put them on the car so I could drive it home on the streets of Queens. And I didn't have a driver's license yet. I parked it in my driveway, went and got my driver's license. I put a big sound system in it and I drove that fucking car into the ground. I love that car. Did you have a kicker in the trunk? I didn't have the kicker. No, but actually the trunk is what made me get rid of that car because it was like one of the, the first ones to have a like electric trunk where you would like close it most of the way and it would finish for you. Oh, okay. But then it stopped doing the electric part, but it it was built in a way where it wouldn't close manually. Like it wasn't an option. So like the trunk wouldn't close. And I took it to a mechanic in Buffalo, New York. And he was like, yeah, it'll be like $1,400 or something to repair it. And I was like, the car cost me a thousand dollars. Buick, you sons of bitches. Goddamn sons of bitches. Engineers at Buick screwed you. So I donated it. And the funny thing is I found one of these ads in the paper for a service that will take your car for you to it, repair it, and donate it to a family in a low-income neighborhood, Oh, which was a nice idea. But like three months later, I saw it parked across the street from my apartment. And I was like, do I live in a low-income neighborhood? Uh-oh. And I was like, I guess I do. <laughs> so oh, man. I learned some things about myself that day. Wow, that's a uh, great story. But if I ever win the lottery, I'm going to buy an old 91 Park Avenue and fix it up real nice. Because I just, it was such a comfortable car to drive. It had the big bench seats. It was like all suede. Oh, yeah. It was so luxurious. Friends can jump in the back. Yeah, that's nice. Love that car. Um, but anyway, it made me nostalgic. And also, he gets another part. He gets a Champagne Park Avenue in Indiana. So he's like a big park avenue guy oh okay all right anyway so let's get into these these basketball player turned actors we've got going on in this movie go down the list butch mccray is the first one we meet played by anthony hardaway electric player one of the greatest what if stories of all time if he hadn't tried to come back on a only partially rehabbed knee after he injured it with the magic but he's just okay i think is how you described him in this movie right he's fine and I went back and watched the the Lil Penny commercials because that's what I really remembered about Penny. Right. Chris Rock played Lil Penny. I don't know if our listeners will go this far back, but there was a great setup. But those Nike commercials, I didn't even catch who they were. Probably Nike. Penny was Nike, yeah. So Chris Rock played this little version of Penny called Lil Penny, who had an attitude and he was a little he was a little doll version of Penny. That yeah, he was like a Pinocchio, but yeah. <laughs> like a little wooden guy. Yeah, that was like alive. And it, that was the point of the commercials that he was more high energy than real pennies. He got himself into more fun situations with ladies, with parties, with with all these things because he was a bigger personality. And so, yeah, Penny's personality is not quite that big, but he does fine. Yeah, he does <laughs> mostly fine. But actually, I think Little Penny, seeing the No Diggity video too by Blackstreet. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. I, th- I think he popped up in there. But yeah, like when the star player is so kind of muted and subdued that you need to pay Chris Rock to voice a puppet 
based on him to give him like a personality. Maybe that's not the guy you want anchoring your, your basketball movie. Well, they didn't know. He was just a kid at this. It wasn't time. even in the league. He wasn't drafted. He was league. coming out of college. He was drafted just after they filmed this. Jack had been drafted, but not hadn't played yet. Oh, really? Okay. When this movie was made. Yeah. He, he, he had been drafted by the Magic, but the season hadn't started yet. So we didn't really know what kind of player he was going to be when this movie was being made. And obviously he turned into a pretty, pretty good one. <laughs> yeah, they picked good. I mean, it's, yeah, you got to give a lot of credit to a sports movie for picking not blind, but, you know, they took a risk and they, they wound up with a pretty cool pair to lead this team. Friedkin said he wanted the youngest looking point guard he could find. And he was just going through like recruiting books and found Anthony Hardaway and said he looked like a little baby. So he was like, I want that kid. And then when he got on set, he was like, oh, he can actually play. And somebody's like, yeah, he's probably going to be like the first overall pick this year. So maybe Friedkin wasn't as tuned into basketball as I alluded to earlier. Yeah. And then you get Shaq playing Neon. Does he come second or does he come third? No, you get Matt Nover first, right? Yeah, you get Matt Nover in between, who I thought maybe I was supposed to know, but you're not supposed to know him because he wasn't in the NBA. Never played NBA ball. He played pro ball overseas for many years. He didn't retire from international basketball until like 2009. So he had a nice long career. And now he's like a head of sales for a biotech company. Oh, yeah. Classic athlete career. I hope he's not as much of a fucking horny weirdo as Ricky Rowe is. This guy <laughs> sucks. No, but that right there, folks, is why you stay in school and you get your degree. Because even if you play professional right. basketball for 20 years, you got to go get that job. Nova played for Indiana. So Bobby Knight wanted one of his kids to be in this movie, I guess, if he agreed to like mm. help out, let Nalty shadow him and then also play himself. In the climactic game. So Nova was who they went with because he looks like a farm kid. He's got the look down. Yeah, he works. He's got the crew cut. Again, you're like, okay, because you get to see so much of them actually playing, the movie excuses itself. You're like, okay, right. yes, these are not actors, but they're doing fine. For the most part, their scenes are pretty straightforward and simple. They actually, though, they make him and Penny both do big blow up scenes or big dramatic turning points. And those are some of the weaker parts of the movie. But you're like, OK, I actually get to see him dropping threes, dunking the ball, just playing basketball like real basketball players. So it makes it worth it. Yeah. And no, Nover's a shooter. So he's not like being asked to handle the ball too much. You know, he just cuts up and shoots and he's good uh-huh. at that. But Lord, is he horny? Why is this fucking kid? I know he's a kid. He's a college kid. Kids can be <laughs> horny. But like, why do you have to announce your horniness to everyone you meet all the time? Like the only <laughs> scenes we get of him are asking for money or just like leering at women. Yeah. He, he sucks. Yeah, he admits I hate that this kid. It's a kind of a one note character. The money actually yeah. seems out of place for this character because all he's done, like the coach is like, don't you want to play ball? That'll let you go to college. Don't you want to go to college? And he's just like, no, coach, I just, I want chicks. That's all I care about. He's like a regular Dick Grayson, this kid. Chicks dig the car. <laughs> chicks dig the tractor, right? Exactly. I did like the scene with his dad. So a running gag throughout these recruiting scenes that Nick Nolte just pretends to be whatever religion he parents of the kid he's trying to recruit are so he says he's a baptist in the scene and ricky rose father played by a very familiar character actor let me pull his name up right quick oh yeah he's um, another deadwood uh alumnus a, right yeah is he just listed as ricky rose dad oh yeah jim beaver ricky's dad first of all great name jim beaver for the dad of a horny fucking <laughs> weirdo but yeah he was also in justified he had a big big arc in justified oh cool he was very good in that yeah he's just one of those guys he was in nightmare alley just recently so he's still going still doing stuff but he so when pete says that he's a baptist he goes oh it's first baptist or southern baptist and there's like a it's a little bit of a tense moment you yeah know, it goes on a moment like, there is we gonna pick the right one <laughs> a few seconds and he picks the right one and it's like a little fun scene but i did like that running gag of Pete kind of being wily and just, you know, doing what it takes to recruit, but still within the rules. Like, that's kind of a fun movie. I find these recruiting scenes to be the most fun that you have in the movie. Yeah. If you're willing to forget that he's a frightening 
angry alcoholic, you're like, oh, this is a kick-ass coach. Because it's got those like Disney movie warm moments of like, him getting over, because it's also pretty silly. The rest of the real life coaches that they got to show up in this film are also trying to recruit these same guys and they're chasing them around. So they, the coaches are all lined up at the parade to see Ricky Rowe drive by with, uh, with Larry Bird. With Larry Bird. And stupid fucking haircut. And then, oh my gosh, who's driving the car? It's Coach Pete Bell. He got over on you coaches. See you later. You snooze, yeah. you lose. And he's like just a wizard of recruiting, which I don't know why he didn't pull some of those moves last year. And he ended up with a weak team that Gave him his first losing season. But anyway, he's back on the horse and he's recruiting like a madman. Yeah, he seems good at it. Yeah. That's why these scenes are fun. Like, I like basketball. I like seeing, seeing the process and it's good stuff. But then we get to the, the big man, Shaq himself, his first movie, not his last. He would go on to have a career. I don't want to say a good career or, you know, a great career in acting, but he's definitely had a career. He's been in movies. You'll hear about him again on this podcast, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. We'll have to come <laughs> back around. Kazam and Steel and such. But he is awesome in these basketball scenes where they're like where are these scenes is it in a barn yeah. is it in like in algiers louisiana some kind of sugar plantation and there's a barn stacked with stuff and the kids are sitting on the sacks of raw sugar or something like that it's all corrugated tin and dark moody lighting and shack is drenched in sweat and dunking on a steel rim and it's fun all seven foot three and Looks like, what, 210 pounds in this movie? He's probably yeah. the skinniest we've ever seen Shaq be. Yeah. He looks um, great. I think of him later in his career when he was just like a mobile home with the wide load sign on him. And here he's like spin moves and getting around like a little young buck. Well, that's the thing. And I don't want to get too basketball-y because I don't know how many of our listeners are really into basketball. But the thing with Shaq is like, think about really tall centers, right? Like guys seven foot plus like Manute Bull or later Yao Ming, like... They're kind of toothpicky, but they're scrawny. They're injury prone. Shaq feels like a really good power forward who's just been scaled up. You know, like he has good movement. He's strong as shit. Like he's not a, just a tall, skinny guy who got into the league because he was tall. He's athletic. I mean, he's probably, he's certainly in the conversation for the best center we've ever seen. Yeah. He's athletic at another level. He's not your Sean Bradley kind of stick man who just lumbers around and locks some shots. This guy can move and move quick and, lo and yeah. looks great on film. Like that part of the movie is really fun to watch. He had such an iconic dunk too, like his two-handed dunk. He had like, yeah. nobody's ever been able to, to slam a ball like that. And uh, just, I don't know, seeing it was just, I don't want to say it brought a tear to my eye, but it was very nostalgic <laughs> to see him like in his prime, just like playing like that. Now that you say that, he's doing the Shaq logo dunk in this movie, yeah. right? That's his logo. And you see it in its raw form. He pulls his knees up and like, right. a, it's a very iconic dunk. Just cool scene. I don't know how plausible it is that like, he's playing at a barn in Algiers, Louisiana, that the whole town seems to have turned out for, uh, that there's that many players of note, like in this town to have yeah. him even have any level of competition there. That actually stood out to me. I'm like, wait a minute. He is not dominating some like small town pickup basketball players the dudes that he's playing with are not his size but they're adequate size they're like nba size dudes right. that he's playing up against they're probably like penny hardaway sized at least yeah he's participating in like the kumite of basketball apparently <laughs> right it's just like this underground cage fight except it's basketball <laughs> they didn't show him dipping his knuckles in broken glass but that i assume was part of the ritual and then when you get to meet him he's charming neon you know he's oh yeah more intelligent than they first let on because he had such a poor score in his SATs, but you find out it was kind of just because he didn't care. It was uh, his defiance, yeah. He was, he's very defiant. Yeah. He thinks that the SATs are culturally biased, and they probably are. Yeah. But <laughs> Coach Bell's like, yeah, sure they are, but we just need to get you into college, buddy. Help me <laughs> out here. 
He's a very likable guy. So like Friedkin would have you believe he talked to Shaq at length about getting gifts in college and money in college. And Shaq was like, oh, yeah, I took money in college. But then if you hear Shaq's side of it, he's like, no, I never took any money in college. I never said that. So interesting dynamic between the director and his. I don't want to call Shaq the star. He's really not in this movie as much as you might remember. If you saw this as a kid like I did, I was like, Shaq's like a second lead. He's also on the poster very prominently, but he's not in this movie a ton. No, he's just a charming side character. And I think it was just the right use. The Shaq part of this movie I thought was spot on. Yeah, he's not much of an actor at this point. He's getting by on charisma, but, you know, he's got a lot of it, so it works. There's maybe one tedious scene where he's debating his English literature professor, and it's like, okay, but it's still funny. He's young Shaq. He's funny. That was the same scene where Ricky Rowe was leering at some of his classmates, (laughs) like the horny, creepy weirdo he is. Speaking of horny, creepy weirdos, let's get to the villain of the story. Happy. Good name for a creepy, horny weirdo. Played by the great J.T. Walsh character actor extraordinaire, sadly no longer with us, but... He chews the scenery up in this movie, and Lord, he wants you to hate this character so bad. But most of what he's saying is like hard to argue. Like we mentioned, we went over it a lot in the beginning, so we don't need to belabor the point too much. But he's like, yo, they make millions of dollars for us at the university. that We owe them something. I'm like, kind of like, yeah. You know, you could go about expressing that idea in less of a shithead way, but you're not wrong. He's not wrong conceptually, but then when push comes to shove, he becomes very cruel and vindictive and way more than he has to be. Like he, he could have also yeah. imagined a guy who was the head booster to just be like, hey, take it easy. This is just the way the business works. We want the school to win. Why are you giving us a hard time? But instead he's like, I'm going to fucking ruin your life. <laughs> well, you know what? Hold on. No, no, no. Because he is like that a bunch. He tries to like extend the olive branch to Pete Bell a bunch of times. He sees him at the restaurant. He's like, hey, why do you hate me so much? That's true. He tries to be civil with him because the scene you're talking about is in the third act. That hasn't okay. even happened yet. That's true. Like I may be getting ahead. He just keeps, keeps eating shit from from Nalty and just being like, don't worry about it, man. I'm just trying to help the program. And then finally, he's like, all right, I've had enough. I'm going to I'm going to fight back a little bit. I'm not saying he's a hero, but if, you know, somebody was talking to you like this at every public function you saw them at, you'd lose it eventually. too. Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic because, yeah, you're right. They do give him some rope. They let him play out that he's trying to be cool. But the clues are the way he dressed, the fact that he's got two buxom young women on his arms at all times. Like he seems yeah, to be Yeah, horny sort of a, equals bad in this movie. Horny people are bad. And he makes a comment to Nulti about, I'm going to let you in on like a little secret. I screw a lot better when we're winning. I was like, you don't have to tell him that. Yeah. That's weird. That's where he started to go sour. And then he only goes downhill from there. Yeah. I don't say you screw either. You're <laughs> Isn't this JT, movie rated R? Just say what you want to say. JT Walsh was a great character actor villain, and he just brought that instant menace. So even in the parts where he's being reasonable, you're like, oh, no, I really need to hate this guy. And I, I'm siding with Coach Pete. Yeah, exactly. You had to have somebody as slimy as JT Walsh in this role or it just wouldn't work at all. All right. That's all I had for this section. You want to walk us through the end? Yeah, let's take it home. A new season gets underway and everyone is buzzing with anticipation over the team's new stars, except for a reporter named Ed, who's determined to prove that Western paid money to get their players. Then Butch puts Coach Pete on the spot. He wants to quit the team and go home, but he doesn't want his mom to lose the new house and job the alumni hooked her up with. Coach Pete is mad to realize he's on the hook in this dirty deal, and he tells Happy to stay away from his players. But Happy blackmails him with the truth behind a suspected point-shaving incident three years ago. Coach is crushed to learn that his old favorite player, Tony, was involved in the scheme. The new blue-chip Dolphins have an impressive debut game, beating Bobby Knight and his top-ranked Indiana Hoosiers. 
But Coach Pete decides to act on his conscience. At the post-game press conference, he comes clean, admits all the cheating, and walks away from his career as a college coach. I take issue with the fact that everyone gasps when he quits at the end of his big press conference. I was like, <laughs> he just admitted to several enormous recruiting violations. Like he was going to be banned for life regardless. His whole I quit thing is pretty performative at that point. That's a good point. I guess he had to say it, but you didn't have to be shocked at that point because he had pretty much burned all his bridges. He just admitted he bought these guys Lexuses and houses and tractors, but we're getting ahead of ourselves at the press conference scene because it's a scene that deserves <laughs> more nuanced discussion. But the reporter, Ed, I assume his last name's O'Neill because fuck it, why not? Um, <laughs> they didn't bother. They're like, hey, we got Ed O'Neill. It's, it's the guy, you know, it's Al Bundy. We're just going to call him Ed O'Neill because we don't have time to think of something. Right. But yeah, he's got a real hard on for Coach Bell. But again, I think this is like another example of if Bell was just nicer to people, he probably wouldn't have this problem. He's probably cursed him out at how many press conferences over the years. So the minute he slips up, he's like, I'm going to fucking nail him. There's a lot of people with grudges against the coach. <laughs> that are just like, this guy's an ass. So yeah, it's again where the tone or the theme of the movie kind of stumbled. Because like, if you thought Coach Bell was actually as angry and unlikable as you start out thinking he is, then you're like, oh, I get it. No, this reporter has just dealt with his shit. But like by the time Ed O'Neill ramps up, Coach Bell has rehabilitated his image and he's the charming guy with the heart of gold who's just won over all these recruits and has demonstrated his ironclad principles. And yet he slips up once and Ed O'Neill's like, we're going to nail Pete Bell to the wall. He's going down. You're like, geez, take it easy. This is the one righteous coach. This is the only guy that you've ever seen not use money to influence his recruiting. And the moment he slips up, you're like, this guy's dead. <laughs> Kill him. Kill his family. I don't know the right mobster movie quote right there, but he goes pretty hard on him. He does. And he must have had a background in like long form investigations before he became like a oh, college yeah. basketball reporter because he's got some fucking tricks up his sleeve. Man, he's doing like some real reporting on the situation. He's determined. Yeah, he's to pulling find up the Panama he Papers. He's finding all the Swiss <laughs> yeah, accounts. He's not going to rest till he nails this one college coach. It's pretty funny. But yeah, if Pete Bell was just nicer. He probably wouldn't have to deal with this. And then like, oh, you know what? He's probably fine. You know, he's been clean this whole time. Let's just give him a pass. And then as the movie likes to rehabilitate everybody, just to close the loop on the Ed O'Neill story, at that final press conference, they're like, wait a minute, we can't leave this with Ed O'Neill being the bad guy. Let's make him just all kind of all of a sudden smirky and innocent and like, oh, shucks, coach. I just got to ask this question. You know, it's my job. I got to ask this question. I wouldn't be doing my job. <laughs> yeah. Would you like to comment on the rumor that you purchased an automobile for Neon Badeau? I know that uh, speech word for word because it's the intro to an Action Bronson song oh. on his fantastic mixtape, Blue Chips. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And the cover is, is Action Bronson dressed like Nick Nolte uh, yelling at a ref. Uh, the Action Bronson. <laughs> And blue chips mixtapes are fantastic. They're not on Spotify, but they're on Amazon Music. If you have that, I uh, highly recommend them. I got to check that out. Now that I'm fully immersed in the blue chips lore, I can get all the references. Yeah. And But yeah, it's like a, a way to soften it. And I'm guessing he's just been beaten down by so many years of getting cursed out by Nick Nolte at these press conferences. He's a little gun shy now or because they just won. He's like, I hate to crash the party and everything. Whereas in the opening press conference, they had just lost. So it was like a little bit more of a everyone was just in a bad mood, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, he approaches it with like kid gloves. To an extent. Yeah, we've had to find him likable by the end. Everybody gets to be likable. Not happy. Except for happy. He goes down Gets hard. dragged out of the press conference <laughs> screaming. I'm, I thought they were like, I'm shocked they didn't just have him like put a gun in his mouth in the middle of the press conference. <laughs> well, it <laughs> would have, but it could have stolen some of the thunder from Coach Pete's exit line. So Yeah, the shocking news that he quit after admitting to the biggest recruiting violations in NCSA history. 
And then, this, so this is where we get the big showdown between Happy and Pete is in this section. Yeah. When Ricky Rowe is out with Happy, right? And they, Pete runs into them. And then he screams at Ricky Rowe. He goes, get the fuck out of here, Ricky. Go home. Because <laughs> every time he sees Ricky, he just has to scream at him and send him home. It's get my favorite joke. Out of there. Yeah. <laughs> and then he tells, tells Happy, stay away from my kids. And then <laughs> Happy turns on him and then starts getting nasty back. Because if you see this movie the way I did, he's just fed up with being screamed at every time he runs into Coach Bell. <laughs> yeah. Sympathy for and Happy. So this is one of my favorite exchanges in this movie. And I'm not sure if they realized how silly it was when they did it, but it's hilarious to me when Happy's like, I didn't break any laws. You did. And then he's like, by the way, three years ago, I fucking shaved points on one of your games. Yeah. Like, no, that's a very big crime. Yeah. You absolutely committed a bunch of crimes. Yeah. That was kind of on you. Like the coach didn't know. Sure. <laughs> that will disgrace the coach if that comes out. That happened under his tenure. But the guy that actually manipulated the score of a game is kind of more at fault. That's what Arnold Rothstein did, right? And he was one of America's greatest organized crime figures. He was a master point shaver. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, from Boardwalk Empire. He was oh, the, the guy behind the World Series point shaving scandal. Yeah. Black so, Sox. That was him. Yeah, so there's some holes in the logic or some things that sort of strain credulity. For me, the, the part that got to me was like, as soon as Happy turns nasty on the coach, he acts like you said, I didn't break any laws. You did. This is all on you, coach. But like the main thing he's been doing is trying to support the alumni who want to see the team win. Okay. So there's that one gambling incident, but it's mostly not about gambling. This is mostly about, I represent the alumni. We'll do anything to get a winning program. And yet the moment the coach talks back, he's like, the alumni and I will burn this program to the ground and fucking salt the earth and never win a game again. It's like, I think you kind of don't want that to happen, Happy. Maybe you have some skin in this game too. If that happens, Happy's never going to be able to get a boner again. Again, he just told you he can't fuck good unless the team's winning. But if there's no team, <laughs> it's personal for him. No, that's serious. Yeah. He's got real skin in the game now. <laughs> Very sensitive skin in the game. <laughs> yeah. So he's totally bluffing at that point. He's not going to blow up the program. But yeah, you know, he gets to be all JT Walsh about it and get real yelly, screaming in public. Yeah. <laughs> in public, just screaming like, my money's laundered. Yeah. <laughs> that's a loud thing to shout across a parking lot. <laughs> you know, let's take it down a notch, guys. Uh, <laughs> there's people around. We're in LA. Like, we're not in fucking Indiana. But as much as the logic is a little strained, I can't help but love just watching Nick Nolte and JT Walsh scream at each other. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> It's, it's pretty, pretty fun. Good. And then the movie gets serious and heavy on the sports sort of intricate part of the drama. Like we said, they like to show long sequences of the games. And in this next scene, after he drops the bombshell that, hey, you're on the hook because your guy actually did shave points. The alleged point shaving incident is true and it happened and it's your problem now. And then so Pete and the coaches go back and sit in the tape room and watch a lot of tape. Yeah. It becomes a procedural for a while. <laughs> and it's good. Like, it's actually, that part I thought was really well done. And the way that the emotions of these coaches turn as they're watching more and more tape and realizing what they're seeing, that was fun drama to me. That was my favorite part of the movie. Yeah, you know what? I don't think I really understood the whole point shaving thing as a kid. I was like eight or nine years old mm -hmm. watching the movie and it went over my head. But watching it now, I was like, yeah, this is interesting. It almost makes me wish we got like a season of TV with this storyline instead of a movie because we could really draw it out. It was sophisticated compared to the rest of the movie yeah. as far as how it handled sports like the other were demonstrations of sports okay here's some coaching set screens boys but this was like these coaches coming to terms with their relationships to the players and what they're seeing on this screen and it's pretty subtle like it's actually oh that's rewarding as a sports fan to see this sophisticated piece of drama unfold it's a very uh, show don't tell sequence which i really appreciate because you just see it in subtle ways where the dialogue starts like in the beginning like oh no like we won this game you know 
there's nothing going on here. Look at him. He's made, he made that shot. Oh, everybody misses a pass now and then. And then this slow dawning realization of what they're seeing is really, really fun to watch. I don't know if fun's the right word, but it's cool to watch. It's interesting. Yeah, it's gripping. By the end of it, the assistant coach is fucking crying in his chair. He's like, Tony's my guy. I can't believe what I'm seeing. And it's powerful. Not to rain on the parade of this one scene that we really liked, but there's a line from one of the assistant coaches who's like, oh yeah, I wasn't even with you guys yet, but I think you guys won this game by eight. <laughs> Some random fucking game from three years ago. You remember how much they won by? I'm sorry, you weren't even on the team yet? Give me a fucking break. I know basketball people are really into basketball, but come on. That was hardcore. I bought it because I just liked that actor and I liked the performance, but I see what you mean. That was kind of draft day level quoting old games. Right. It's like, is Jennifer Garner in the room? He pops is that in. assistant coach? She's like 19 years old. <laughs> I was an assistant coach with Purdue back then. But so then we get the big confrontation between coach and Tony, where it feels like coach might be projecting on him a little bit because he's like, you took the one pure thing in your life and you, you corrupted it. And I was like, that's what you did, though. Yeah. Good. <laughs> like, no, good analysis. And if you take it as it's written that way, as this is the subtext that he's projecting then it becomes a much better scene. I kind of saw the surface level where it's like, he's being too hard on this guy and the guy's taking it. And I didn't like him at that moment because he's like- He's absolutely being too hard on him for a game that they won. <laughs> and yeah. so this is the scene we've kind of referenced earlier on where Friedkin didn't like the performance he was getting out of Anthony C. Hall, who plays Tony. So he slapped the shit out of him ahead of one take and then got the scene he liked and then just kind of like didn't address it ever again. <laughs> So that bumps cool. out whatever good feeling you might have got out of that scene, which was a really emotional performance. But also, yeah, I guess now I have a lot of conflicted emotions between the coach being unfair, the director being uncool. And yeah, the guy was a kid, though. Like, the coach should be beating himself up for this. This was a kid right. that was in his program. A freshman got approached by some scary, like, people who are fixing games, like you're saying. That goes straight towards organized crime. Like, I would be frightened as a kid if I was approached by somebody that asked me to shave points. That's like a boxer being asked yeah. to throw a fight. There's no way happy is the top of the fucking food chain in the point shaving scandal. You know, like, this is not the kind of guy that would do that. So he's got partners that I'm sure are not, you know, like, you just want to push happy into a bush. But I'm sure he has partners <laughs> that don't tolerate that. Yeah. So like Coach Pete, if you thought about it, she'd be like, oh, my God, Tony, I failed you. You were a fucking 17 year old kid playing basketball in my program. And I let you get pushed around by some fucking gangsters. And they almost ruined both of our lives and the sport we love. Own up to it, coach. Yeah, that would have made coach much more sympathetic. Yeah. But yeah, the way I read it was that he's just kind of spiraling because of his own failures and uh, takes it out on Tony, That's which true. isn't good. And I really liked Anthony C. Hall as Tony. We don't get a ton with him, but him and coach clearly have a, a strong relationship. Everyone talks about Tony in such revered tones. It's like, you know, he's clearly everyone's favorite. And I bought into it. You know, you could see him. He's a good player, but he also seems like a good kid. Just, yeah. It's a bummer. At least he got to his senior year. The rest of these kids were freshmen who played one fucking game. Yeah. Oh, we'll get to that. I have <laughs> issues with fucking wishy-washy Pete Bell. All right. So then the climactic game of the movie is the opening game of the season, which is just something I can't recall ever happening before in a sports movie. Yeah. I guess it works because this is the first time you're seeing them all together. And if it went through a whole season and we know how good they are. You know, it's less drama of whether or not he's going to kind of drop the bombshell. But here he sees how good they are and immediately like regrets his, his course of action. He is bummed by the end of this game. Again, this is one of the places where they spend a lot of time on the game and there's not a real story in the game. It's just like a lot of closely fought basketball. It's a back and forth game. Yeah, it's just a good basketball game. This is one of the ones that they shot. Like I said, they, they just set up cameras and let them play a game. They had real players on Indiana, you know, guys on the level of the stars of the Western team. And one of the guys Ricky Hurley, 
He said he was capable of doing so much more, but uh, he got yelled at for scoring too much and being too flashy on Indiana. And they were like, that's Bobby Hurley, right? Bobby Hurley. I'm sorry. Yeah. Bobby Hurley. I yeah. got Ricky Rowe on the brain. Rowe. Bobby Hurley, very good player. But <laughs> he was like, yeah, we were kind of, we were kind of washing them. And I got yelled at <laughs> that we had to let them score because they weren't getting any good footage. He had to tone it down, so. not take the ball away every time. Yeah, he kept stealing the ball. So there's a weird dynamic in the game because there's a bunch of generic play calling. And like I said, a bunch of just back and forth scoring going on. And then one coach goes, move your feet, move your feet. And the other's like, set more screens. And it's all kind of generic stuff. They're big on screens. Like, <laughs> a lot of screening. Most of their coaching advice is like, just set a screen. Don't yeah. want to do set a screen. It's like, we're talking about free throws now. <laughs> yeah, set screens. But yeah, then there's a couple moments where they, they insert some specific drama, call a timeout, Coach Pete draws up a play and it's so intricate i'm like is nolte like inventing these on the spot because it's got nine different moves in the play it's not just jumping into the post and then come it's like okay you go here and then at the tight end comes around picks the guard the wide receiver comes across the middle it's just uh, the wide receiver it's, it's like it gets it's like basketball plays they're not like nine steps before and then Shaq will be open underneath the hoop after step nine of this play and then he throws him it's a good thing father pat wasn't refing the game because they throw this out loop he would have called a double foul he's just floating <laughs> through the air you can't do that you can't what's he doing <laughs> semi-pro probably a, a better movie but not a better basketball movie no uh, yeah and then so apparently this climactic final play you're describing Friedkin got everyone set up in their place and he addressed the audience he addressed the crowd and was like look this is going to be like your team winning this huge game it's going to be uh -huh. the final play I want you all to run on the stands like your favorite team just won the championship you know it's a huge event so just go crazy run on the court uh, we're gonna have a huge celebration and then Bobby Knight instructed his players to block the play yeah just to fuck with Friedkin, I guess, because he was mad about like Vital giving him a hug or something before the before this, this whole shooting day. Yeah, it's not clear. Was he just mad that he had to play the losing coach? Maybe I think that was part of it. That was part of it. He was also apparently in a bad mood because like Vital had come up behind him and bear hugged him in the green room and. Bobby Knight just elbowed him in the face. <laughs> Bobby Knight comes off like a real dick in this. So this is a Sports Illustrated oral history that we're referring to. We'll put that in the show notes. So really interesting. But he instructed his players not to let the play happen. And then like somebody said, I can't remember who said it, but he was like, if William Friedkin had a gun, he probably would have shot Bobby Knight right in there. <laughs> he was so pissed. But then, you know, they ran it again the second time. Knight let it go through as planned. Shaq gets the big slam dunk. The team wins and everyone runs on the court. And Pete Bell is carried off the court while looking absolutely fucking miserable. He looks like he just might have pooped his pants or something. And it's like, oh, my God, I'm being carried on people's shoulders. Uh, this is really uncomfortable for me. But I didn't connect it later. I'm like, why is Coach Pete mad? And I thought it was because they didn't run all nine steps of the play that he drew up. They just clobbed it to Shaq and just power dunked it. But it turns out that's where his conscience hit him. And he's like, I can't go on like this. I'm going to have to blow up the press conference. And then there's the press conference. And it's a doozy. It's Clearly somebody thought this was going to be a real, like somebody was going to submit this to the awards eventually. It's classic sports movie stuff. Cause yeah, Nick Nolte is just like a, a wind up toy. That was my note that I made earlier. It's like, he's like a wind up. Did you call him McNulty or Nick Nolte? <laughs> McNulty. I heard McNulty like from the wire. Yeah. Oh. McNulty is not as much of a yeller as Nick Nolte, but. He had his moments. Yeah. He's kind of like this wind up toy of a bombastic coach and you, you set the spring real tight and then you set him loose in a scene and he like starts bouncing off the walls yelling at everybody. And he, I was a little tired of it by the time of this presser. And he does that quiet to screaming trick yeah. in a half a second move. And it was just he's like, a pixie, he's a Pixies fan. Loud, quiet, loud. <laughs> yeah. He does a bunch of those Pixies <laughs> choruses. And I was a little worn out by this point, but I would, let me just say, I like the ending. I liked that he bailed out. Cause I could see that coming. I'm like, 
The only thing he can do is bail out. You've set up that he's such such a figure of moral rectitude, like he cannot walk away from that. He can only, the only thing he can do is get the fuck out of there. And the speech itself isn't bad. It's meandering. It's probably a little too long, but there is some good stuff in there. I like his little bit about, because it's not about education. It ain't much about winning as it sure as hell ain't about basketball. It's about money. Just goddamn money. <laughs> that was the one time I thought that the scream, the quiet, the screaming really landed for me. I quoted that quite a bit in my life because, <laughs> oh. you know, it really applies to any team that James Dolan owns, the owner of the Knicks and the Rangers. It ain't much about winning. It's about <laughs> money. Fuck that guy. Anyway, then we get the weirdest. It feels so anachronistic to see like a wrap up little montage at the end of a movie (laughs) where you just tell us what happens to them. Couldn't you put this in a stinger scene? You know, nowadays we'd get stinger scenes of all these people. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder if it felt kind of old fashioned even in the 90s. It was probably on its way out. This kind of thing. So Coach Pete Bell ends up coaching a high school team in, where was he, Indiana, Ohio? In the Midwest. They use the Midwest like a slur right there. They're like, at a small high school in the Midwest. (laughs) He's eating casseroles and hot dish all the time. (laughs) Sounds good, right? And then there's Penny and Shaq Butch and Neon, both end up playing in the NBA. Ricky Rowe goes back to the farm with zero bitches. My man's got no hoes. He is back on the farm. His dad's got a new tractor, at least. Yeah, at least he gets to drive the new John Deere. I hope they don't make him give it back. I thought it was kind of funny that they were like, this didn't hurt Shaq and Penny at all. Uh, Well, because that's the reality of it, right? Yeah, (laughs) this was when you could just go to the NBA and they were fine. But it's that that great joke from basketball. It's like, do you think uh, Shaq got rich playing in Orlando? No, he got rich playing in college. Everyone knows that. Where the uh, the guy's trying to make the illusion he got rich on his second contract in L.A. Ah, okay. <laughs> they come, it's, it's, it happens a couple times. If you could find a clip of it, it'd be fun to drop it in there. All right. Do you think Shaq got rich playing in Orlando? Hardly. He made his fortune moving to L.A. You know how much he makes now? As much as he made playing in college? Yeah, Ricky Rowe gets zero bitches. Uh, what Aww. else happens? The team can't. There's no tournament play for four years, I think, was their thing. Pretty light sentence for the program. I know there have been like real world parallels since this movie. I don't know what the punishments handed down were, but there have been plenty of colleges that have gotten caught up in recruiting scandals. Yeah. Since then. It's a fact of it was a good subject to make a movie about, but the movie could have had a, a more subtle touch. You know, if you criminalize paying the players, then the people who pay the players will be criminals. Is that how the metaphor goes? I guess. And the players. But the players themselves tend to get off scot-free, at least in the NBA. Yeah. Which I don't disagree with. They're kids. It's the adults that are doing all this shady shit that should be held responsible primarily. You want to hear what happened to uh, the people involved with this movie? Yeah. Can you do some little end title cards? Let's do it. Let's pop them up. I mean, we all kind of know what happened to Shaq. (laughs) Yeah. He's still Shaq. Yeah. Beloved. Penny, we kind of went over what happened to Penny. He hurt his knee in 1997, came back ahead of schedule before really rehabbing it the right way. And he was still a valuable role player for years. He had a good run with the Knicks, actually, in that time. Oh, okay. The playoffs, but never the same player. And now he's the head coach of Memphis, I believe. Oh, that's right. He came back around. That's where he went to college. So. Yeah, he's a Memphis boy. So that's good for him. Matt Nover, we mentioned he's a... I just... I have a strong dislike for Matt Nover now, which is not his fault at all. I just... Right. Ricky Rowe is such a creepy character that <laughs> it's uh, Nick Nolte's next movie was the famously troubled. I love trouble. See a wordplay there. A movie I saw in the theaters with my mom and my sister, and it was a big bomb. We'll have to cover it one day because it's got a lot of behind the scenes drama. Apparently Nolte and Julia Roberts, his co-star fucking hated each other. Oh, wow. <laughs> 
So I would love to dive into the, the drama and behind the scenes of that movie. Um, but that was his next movie. And then he's worked nonstop pretty much up till now. He was in stuff like Warrior, which we did. Go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. Uh-huh. Tropic Thunder, U-Turn, Affliction, Hotel Rwanda, The Thin Red Line. All good movies that deserve your attention. Sure. And then other stuff like Breakfast of Champions, Gangster Squad. Stay tuned for that one. That's on the schedule. The Ridiculous Six somehow got Nick Nolte to be in there. Uh, the Adam Sandler Netflix movie. Oh, yeah. And he was recently seen in The Mandalorian playing a little alien guy. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. You hear him. I guess you don't see him. I don't even know if it's him under all the prosthetics, but it's his voice. It's probably not him playing him. He's, you know, in his like 70s now. And he's got Rittenhouse Square and a movie called Blackout coming up. Okay. So. He's staying busy. Yeah. JT Walsh tragically died in 1998 of a heart attack at 54. Young mm. man taken too Gone soon. Too soon. I'm sure all like the screaming he had to do in this movie didn't help. But no. he, uh, well, it's kind of a weird story. He had chest pains a few weeks before he died. He went into the hospital, did the right thing, tried to get a checkup. An EKG test was reported normal, but that was incorrect. They didn't read it correctly. Oh. There was, you know, signs of, of trouble there. They ignored them and he passed away. But He followed this up. He was in a lot of good movies in the 90s. He was in The Client, Miracle on 34th Street, Executive Decision, Sling Blade, The Uh Negotiator. I love The Negotiator. That's like one one of those movies I used to watch nonstop. He appeared in 19 movies between 1994 and 1998. Nice. My man was prolific. Mary McConnell, Jenny, Jen A, is probably best known for playing First Lady Marilyn Whitmore in Independence Day and later President Laura Roslin in Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. If you're a... Battlestar fan, but she's still acting. She's done long stretches on shows like The Closer and Major Crimes and then like guest stints on Grey's Anatomy, Fargo, Veronica Mars. And she's popped up in movies like Donnie Darko, Scream 4. So she's a working actor doing well. She's good in this. I feel like the role was a little thankless because it was a very utility role. Can we still be together? No, we can't. Can you help Shaq with the SATs? Okay. Oh, no, you lied to me. It's like she had to just grind all the dramatic gears in this. And it was a little, I didn't feel like she got to lead anything. She was just being used for this role that she was playing. That being said, she's a very charismatic actor and she made the most of this role. I really like her as an actor. The character was forced to do a lot of exposition and also was forced into that trope of the sporty lady who knows all about sports, like the Jennifer Garner thing like we talked about. Right. And also like the badass who contains wild man. It's a very 90s role for a woman. Yes. She's not a real character. She's just there to serve the man at the center of the story. Yeah. Not serve in the literal sense, but like serve his role in the movie. No, totally. So Ron Shelton, we mentioned his credits. He would go on to do Cobb, the uh, famous Ty Cobb movie, Tin Cup. Okay. And The Great White Hype, he wrote. I'm a big fan of The Great White Hype, though I haven't watched it in many years, so I don't know if it holds up. That's our boy Pete, Petey Berg. Oh, okay. Is the, uh, one of the main actors in that. He also wrote Hollywood Homicide and Bad Boys 2. Oh. Interestingly enough. He directed Hollywood Homicide. <laughs> That's on the schedule, too. Stay tuned for that. And then Friedkin would go on to make the famous turkey, Jade, right after this. The David Caruso erotic thriller. Do you remember oh, that one? I do not remember that. That sounds horrible and intriguing at the same time. David Caruso quit his, his big NYPD blue job to go do movies, and that was like the one movie he got made before he had to go back to TV. Turn around. Yeah. And then he did Underperformers, like Rules of Engagement and The Hunted. But then he made Bug, which is a movie I'm very fond of. Oh, it really? It wasn't a big commercial hit at the time, but it was a critical favorite. And it's become like a big cult classic since then. I was too scared to watch it because it just seemed like it was going to creep me the fuck out. It is very creepy. I mean, it's got Michael Shannon in the lead role. You can go one of two ways with Michael Shannon. And both of them are pretty creepy. Sure. <laughs> He's either creepy as a good guy or creepy as a bad guy. Yeah. And I don't really know which one I would put him in in this. And then he made Killer Joe, which is just completely a bananas movie. I don't know if you've ever seen Killer Joe, the Matthew McConaughey, Emile Hirsch, Gina Gershon stage adaptation. No. It's 
fucking bananas. Uh, and but it bombed, but it got good reviews. I and, put that on my list. And then that would be his last movie to date. He's in his late 80s now, so he's retired. And that's Blue Chips. Did you have any closing thoughts on it? I think I kind of hit my closing thought already, which was for all the flaws that I saw in this movie where I thought it went shallow when it could have gone deep. It sanded all the spiky edges off the coach that it sketched in at the beginning. So it was unsatisfying. It was kind of like a demonstration video. Here's the life of a coach. Let's walk through all the things he has to do. And here's how he's successful. Then in the end, it got actually dramatic. And I actually have to give it credit for that ending because the coach had very clearly stated his morality and what he would accept and not accept. And it's the only thing he could do to quit. And in a Hollywood movie, I feel like the temptation to come up with a clever Hollywood ending where he outsmarts everybody and fixes everything and sets everything right. And they didn't cheese out on that. So just to say, fuck you, I quit was very satisfying to me. So I had to give the movie some real credit for that. Yeah, I think we ragged on this, this movie a little bit, but I still like it. I was still entertained. I'll probably still go back and watch it a little more frequently than I have been at least every few years. I think you're right, though. Whereas we said draft day is less enjoyable the more you know about football, I think Blue Chips is more enjoyable the more you're into basketball. Yeah. Which a lot of sports movies don't go that kind of hardcore route. So I do respect it for that. And it's well acted by the actors. The basketball players play basketball well. I've got nothing too bad to say about this movie that we didn't already go over. I see why it failed. It's not really marketable and it's just okay in quality. So just kind of got lost in the shuffle. I think it could have done more. Like you said, it didn't get a great shot. There was a universe in the 90s where the movie with a good yelly coach and a Shaq Duncan of basketball could have made good money. I mean, look at like any given Sunday is probably the closest comparison to this movie came out in 99, but it made over $100 million trying to show the dark side of sports and actually be accurate to some extent about the realities of it. So yeah, there is a world where this could work. Just didn't all come together for blue chips, but it's lived on, you know, it still comes up all the time. (laughs) Like I said, I hear about it constantly, so it hasn't been lost to time. Check it out if you're into basketball or Nick Nolte and you'll probably dig it. Our next episode will be a fun one. It's going to be Big Trouble in Little China, a movie I've never seen. Oh man, I'm looking forward to this. I saw it as a kid and I only remember little vague images from it. So I'm, I'm really excited to go back. We were primed for John Carpenter after our adventures with the thing. It's going to be really yep. fun. And it's not just a duo this time. The honorary third Blastoid, Nash Flynn, is coming back to join us for that one. So that'll, that'll be great. Always love having Nash on. She'll be our first three-time guest. Top of the leaderboard. Fun stuff. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please make sure to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast if you're enjoying it. Hit us up on Twitter at BlastZonePod. You can email us any suggestions, questions, comments, compliments. Nice things. Yeah, nice things primarily would be welcome at this time. That's BlastZonePod at gmail.com. And uh, we'll see you next time in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone.